this place that we worked at had overnight operators, so they would there were shift employees who would work, you know, the late hours of the, the evening and things like that. No, I'm not saying <laughs> Sam ruined my innocence. <laughs> <laughs> So, Chase, one of my earlier jobs in security was centered around uh, logging and monitoring and sort of uh, detection and analytics when it came to uh, network activity and network traffic. So I sat on the, the blue team instead of the red team. And because I know how your career got started, I know you did something very similar. <laughs> yeah, it's a really small world. I know, it's weird. Yeah. So one of the things that was always fascinating when we were doing that sort of blue teamy watching things happen uh, life was the, the discussions that always came around to like, are we seeing enough? Do we have enough information? What are we missing? That definitely kept me up a few nights. Oh yeah. And then the, the random late night calls because there's something broken or something is happening. Which those were a lot better when I was an intern because I didn't have to respond to those ones. <laughs> also true. Actually, do you remember the time when we were traveling for business and we had to run back up to the hotel room because we got like, I think 10,000 hits from a Chinese IP address all at once for some reason? Oh, good um, times. Yeah, that one was weird. And it was actually just nothing. I think it was just a scanner or something that just passed over one of our external IP addresses. It was, you know, really exciting for nothing to happen. So you and I have both been sort of out of that game for a little while. So I wanted yes. to bring on... A, a professional blue teamer, someone who's actually still in the game, and someone who can sort of talk us through what blue teaming is like now, uh, some of the, the tools he gets to use, and sort of the directions that he's trying to help the industry move, or watching the industry move in, I suppose. I want to welcome on Brian O'Hara. Is it O'Hara or O'Hara? O'Hara. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate the welcome. Okay. We've only worked with him for like a year or so. Nobody gives him. Yeah, no. <laughs> I always, I, I hate pronouncing names because I just assume I know how to read, but I actually don't. <laughs> so that's my problem. That's okay. But hey, Brian. It, it gets butchered all the time, um, especially with technology. That uh, apostrophe in my last name is pretty much guaranteed to break most systems. So, <laughs> <laughs> Little bobby tables. Yep, exactly. <laughs> that's XKCD, right? Yeah. Uh, so is that what inspired you to join the blue team? It's to finally <laughs> fix all the systems that your apostrophe breaks? Uh, you know, the, it's probably a good motivator. Um, actually, honestly, it, it's it's kind of funny. I think I've always sort of been a, um, a, a defender, I guess, even in, in real life, you know, um, going back to my, my childhood days of playing games, video games, board games, all that type of stuff. I always seem to generally fall back to, um, you know, supportive type of roles, whether it be a healer or, you know, I'm the guy in Call of Duty or something that's uh, usually the, the guy that's going to run in and lay fire down while everybody else actually does stuff. Um, you know, it's, I, I've always been in that sort of supportive role. So I think that sort of blended over into my uh, cyber endeavors as well. I just enjoy protecting things, defending things, uh, solving puzzles, problems, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think there part of a prerequisite of just cyber in general is that that desire to like figure something out and then to help somebody. Absolutely. And then where that translates from there, I think depends on, you know, do you want to do active defending people or defend people by showing them the problem? I don't know. I sit on the fence on that still. I still, I still miss blue team days of, you know, going in and watching logs and doing incident response, but I don't, I can't complain about red team stuff. Yeah. There's something nice about 
uh, it's almost like a puzzle trying to piece things together after it happened trying to figure out where they got in what they did and all that and that's something i definitely do enjoy and miss still yeah and there's there's so many what ifs you know um you you can play Mm. out all sort of scenarios um you know i've had the opportunity to work with some of you guys um, doing some of your red team type of engagements and even seeing you all come up with attack methodologies or an attack chain uh, is kind of pretty much the same process that we do on the blue side. Um, We're just always trying to find all of those little, you know, gotchas and what ifs. Oh yeah. I mean, well, the methodology and the the thought process are similar on both sides of, you know, when you're, you're designing logging systems and rules around for blue teaming, you've got to put that hat on of, well, what could they do? What what are they targeting? What are they trying to get to? And how do they do it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, another critical component is understanding your your tools fully, um, which I think is also a component that you see a lot on the red side. You know, generally on the red side, you're, you're doing it to find an abuse of a feature or something, you know, maybe a bug or whatever may be in there. But on the blue side, you, you want to think about how the attacker may do that and, and how they may try and get clever with some of those features. Right. I think one of the things that anytime I talk to cyber students, I've probably said this on the podcast already, but one of the things I try and tell interns or cyber students is if you want to be a good red teamer, you need to get the basics of blue teaming down because you need to have the the thought process and methodology of both. And I I believe the inverse is true as well, that you know to be a to really excel at blue teaming, you need to un- have a good understanding of how red teaming works, what the what the directions are in that attacker's mindset. Absolutely. Um, and honestly, I think that the industry is kind of agreeing with that thought as well, which is where you see most of these, um, you know, purple team engagements that are coming mm-hmm. out where you're mixing your red and your blues. You know, that that's definitely a vital component. I know even from the blue side, most defensive cyber defensive trainings you'll take nowadays will, you know, harp on the, the whole theory or thought process of, thinking like an attacker, think red, but you take actions as if you're in the blue side. So think red, act blue. Um, I've heard a lot, you know, in the industry. You know, it is really critical that you can think in that same mindset that an attacker is doing so that you can understand and make sure that you're not missing any gaps. You know, like we were talking about um, investigating logs or trying to piece those puzzle pieces back together of an incident. I, I, you just reminded me of a talk that I watched at, I think it was... DerbyCon 2016 um, by Carlos. <laughs> Every time we bring up DerbyCon, that's just the follow-up. Uh, yeah, I think it was DerbyCon 2016 by Carlos Perez. Um, he talked Thinking Purple, which was one of my first sort of introductions to the concept of purple teaming, where, like you were saying, you've got to think red, act blue, and go through that mindset of that. If you want to be a good protector, you have to think like the attacker and vice versa. If you want to be a good attacker, you need to understand how the what the attacker or what the defender is looking for. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think they um they're they're really complementary skills. You know, I, I feel that sometimes there's a bad rap when you get the the blue and red t- sides kind of paired against each other. Um and and really they both help each other in the long run. Um everything that the blue side can learn from the red is only going to benefit us all and vice versa. Everything that the red side can learn from the blue is going to make everybody stronger. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all defenders. We all need yeah. to be helping each other and we all need to be improving the defensive organizations. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We, we ultimately have that, that goal that 
all of our efforts, whether you're on the red side or the blue side, assuming that your red side is um, ethical and you're doing it from a professional standpoint, <laughs> um, is, is really to ultimately improve the, the organization that you're working for, um, whether you're doing it from a consultancy standpoint or, you know, coming in as an outsider or working for that company specifically. So, yeah, it's a, we all have the same vision, same purpose, um, just doing it in different methods and ways. Yep. The, the overall objective, no matter what you do for security, is to like protect and improve and, well, secure <laughs> whatever yep. it is you're in charge of uh, securing. And a lot, a lot of that com- all is centered in, you know, the just different attack or different perspectives that you can put into the situations to make sure you're looking at your objective from all kinds of different angles. I tell my wife all the time that I'm a uh, professional devil's advocate and she hates that. Well, she hates it when I bring it back home. <laughs> but at the core, that is really what we do is we, we talk about worst case scenarios. We talk about, you know, if this happens, what do you do? Or if this happens or if this attacker does this, what happens to you? We're basically trying to enforce Murphy's Law. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> you know, that's actually kind of a good point, though. You know, that's one thing that I, I think is kind of shocking when you get into it. You, you think that a lot of the cyber defense stuff is... Um, you know, real exciting. And a lot of it is, but then when you get down into the nitty gritty, because we're, we are looking at all those worst case scenarios, it, it sort of turns to a um, almost doom and gloom situation. You know, is, is there even any hope for us? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's a hard attitude to try and stave away in security. You're right. Absolutely right. Especially in the, uh, and when you're doing the defending, you're like, uh, stop quoting to me that I had to be 100% right all the time, and they only had to be right once. I hate that. Yeah, that's probably one of my uh, least favorite catchphrases that likes to get circled around. Um, you know, I, I definitely don't necessarily agree with that. The um, Blue has really kind of changed their mentality, honestly, a lot because mm-hmm. of that collaboration that we're starting to instill with Purple Teaming, where the Blue side is is trying to get a little bit more active, and that's where you get into some of your um, you know active countermeasures and active cyber defense stuff with you know honeypots and Uh, other various technologies uh, to where it's almost where the blue sides, you know, hacking back. I I hate to use that term as well, but, you know, kind of the same concept, you know, where the the blue is embracing that that red mentality and using it against the red teamers themselves. Yeah, I'm a big proponent for the concept of your sock going out and, you know, tinkering with some of the the equipment that you have, especially the equipment that you have exposed to the internet. I think the sock should have a really good understanding of what's sitting out there, what's what's uh, publicly facing, what can be accessed, where the login portals are. And they should, you know, be doing audits themselves of what exists. That probably starts to fall under the sort of the threat hunting umbrella. But, you know, I think if you want a strong SOC, you you need to start to build in more and more of that, like you said, that more of those active countermeasures and more of that active sort of perspective when it comes to your SOC operators. Yeah, and, you know, also to your point, it's hard to defend something that you don't know exists. Um, So, you know, it is critical to go out there and and look for those type of things. I mean, I read you guys, uh, the the reports that you all do um, for risk assessments and stuff all the time, and it's shocking to see some of these clients that are just shocked by, hey, oh, yeah, I remember that portal that was, you know, 15 (laughs) years ago, and somebody just abandoned Mm -hmm. it, and it's still floating out there. But, you know, there's always things that creep out of scope or, you know, just get left behind, and people don't remember it, and then a couple years down the road, it becomes that attack vector that's able to be capitalized to get into an organization. 
Well, and it just takes one forgotten portal to to get a foothold. Exactly. Right? It, one one forgotten application that was just set up as a test to show as a POC for you know manager X Y and Z who's long since retired, but it's still there. The internet doesn't forget. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That also plays right into the perspective that you know anytime you look at uh, those sort of articles of like how to secure your organization or CSC top. 10 or top 20 uh, cybersecurity controls. It's the first, usually one or two are get an inventory and figure out a way to actively keep your, or dynamically keep your inventory up to date. Because the moment you start to lose perspective on what you're protecting, <laughs> you begin to lose that battle. Absolutely. Yeah, you've, you've got to maintain that visibility. Not only does it provide you a list of assets, you know, you have an incident and you are seeing an IP flag in your your SIM or something of that nature, you could at least track down what that's supposed to be associated with. But it also provides you with a a list of, hey, these are data sources that I probably should be going Mm -hmm. to collect. It's almost like a checklist of, do I have logs coming from this? Or is this something that I'm even able to touch if something happens? The inventory should be what is uh, driving sort of your collection directives your your logging directives and gives you that perspective on where you need to be watching absolutely you know when when we go into a client to do any type of incident response um, a risk assessment uh, anything from the blue side per, per se the number one first step we do is you know ask them what what do we have to work with do you have network diagrams do you, do you have any type of asset inventory which unfortunately mm-hmm. oftentimes is no um so that, that becomes our first task that we have to end up doing but you know it's essential to know that information um you know not only in terms of assets whether it's computers or servers or any of that but also um, your security stack, you know, do do you have firewalls out there? Do you have um, intrusion detection systems? Do you have an antivirus system? Do you have anything, you know? There's a lot of non-conventional things that people don't realize can be used for that detection standpoint as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even simple things like SCCM that's used for patching and, and pushing out software, you know, that's a quick way to inventory all of the software that's on your network. There, there's a lot of things oh, yeah. that might not necessarily be designed, you know, for detection or um, alerting, but can be used in that capacity. It's always interesting going to organizations and seeing them, like they're fully in the run phase with all this stuff. Like they have like IDS, IPS, EDR, all the stuff reporting into one pane of glass, but they didn't do the crawl phase. They didn't do a good enough job of managing their assets. And they have all these old servers that do not have any of these protections in place. Like, all right, then what good is all this expensive Mm -hmm. shiny toys you have exactly well and that's another good point is that you know just deployment coverage is never seems to be at a hundred percent you know i've worked recent incidents where we get in there and they just literally detected the event because of happenstance because it the Mm -hmm. uh, you know the attacker pivoted to a device that just happened to have that you know tool on it that you know the CrowdStrike or that edr solution or whatever it is but when you start going back and doing all the forensics, you start realizing that there's all these gaps and these holes and, oh, well, yeah, that EDR solution wasn't installed on these other four devices that they touched mm-hmm. that they got on there first. So, yeah, yeah, you know, that that comprehensive coverage of your security stack is just as critical as, you know, having the inventory. But having that inventory also gives you a checklist to say to go and audit that, you know, and, and find out and make sure that you do have things deployed with proper coverage. I think I read something somewhere recently where they were saying that the the target shouldn't for or for logging coverage the target shouldn't be 100% it should be somewhere between like 80 and 95% because the the constant strive for that 100% coverage is oh, I don't remember exactly what the article said but it was something along the lines of it's causing 
the actual operators to be discouraged on actually attaining that goal. And then it's reflecting poorly to leadership and management when their management is very numbers based. So when they see that, oh, we're never going to make that 100%, you know, it puts a bad taste in their mouth as well. Oh, absolutely. So is that like a perfect is the enemy of good type thing? Yep, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, in that in that respect, too, you know, it's critical to make realistic goals. And I think in any organization, it's not realistic to have any type of 100% coverage of, of anything. You know, you're, even the assets that are coming on and off the network are volatile. Uh, if you allow your employees to bring their own device to, net, to the network and connect their, you know, phone or something to a wireless access point, you know, obviously that's control that's that's not within your control. So you're always going to have these these devices coming and going, especially in, in today's pandemic times with folks working from home and going in and out of the office or signing on to a VPN or signing off from a VPN, um, you, you just never will have that full 100% coverage. It's just not practical. Yeah. So, and that's where it becomes important to start to, with that inventory, then you start to identify what are your critical assets and you, you start to understand your, your, your key data flows. And that's where you should be building, you know, your first rounds of detection ability, right? You've got to protect your critical assets first. The other parts, the the sort of auxiliary or the ancillary pieces are important, but you need to consider critical paths first. And I think we've seen a number of companies that go, oh, th- yeah, this is just a source code repository. Who cares that it's, you know, we don't have direct detection sitting on the, the repository itself. People access it all day. Yeah, but not from the internet. <laughs> right. Well, and also you can think of that, you know, in, in terms of the concept you just you just put out is kind of that, um, you know, your your golden treasure that 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 is your business, mm-hmm. that your data, um, whatever it may be, an application that you have, source code like you were mentioning, and ultimately that's probably going to be the goal or the objective that the attacker is trying to get to. So you you want full visibility into being able to see when they have claimed the flag, they've captured that flag. Um, you know, you may have missed every other step, but you want to know when that critical asset is, is touched, you know, whether they're successful exfiltrating it or not. If any type of unusual activity is happening, that that's definitely a, an essential piece that you should be detecting. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's interesting to see too, once you start to build some truly holistic monitoring around those critical assets, that those, those, tre- the, the golden treasure, the keys to the kingdom, the, the company jewels, whatever you want to call it. I, I feel like I've heard it a hundred different terms for it. But uh, once you build holistic monitoring around those, it's amazing to see how a lot of the other pieces of the network come into play. Like you start to really understand, okay, you know, this subnet talks over here to during these parts of the day during these batch processes, right? And just by watching these key areas, you start to really develop a good baseline for traffic across the environment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that is also a, a big component. You know, we, we talked about getting a baseline of your, your inventory and, and what's actually on the network, but also getting a baseline of that traffic, like you were talking about, is, is just as critical. It seems that nowadays with attackers using a lot of the, you know, they, the living off the land binaries and things like that, identifying bad based off of just signatures alone has pretty much become a, te- a technique that's not becoming in favor very often. Um, just because it's really easy to circumvent, you know, you, you change a piece of code or something, it changes a hash or, um, you know, obviously IPs and all of that type of stuff is, is completely easy to rotate. But if you know for a fact that you don't have, you know, a system or, or you know, your crown jewel system should not be touching the Internet. And then all of a sudden you start seeing some outbound stuff to 
that that one system going outbound to the internet it that that's a problem that's a that that should be a red flag so yeah just even a baseline of what activity should be coming and going from a system is is definitely as essential as having a baseline of the actual devices on the network i feel the next step in the where you're going with that brian is is a part that has frustrated or really frustrated me when i was like about to exit the blue team at my previous position because it was something we were trying to implement but to your point just hashes alone signature based detection it's hardly inclusive and you have to start to move towards behavior based detection and gosh that is such a hard thing to do (laughs) absolutely signature based is good for like the low and low media level threats but it's not going to stop anyone who's serious well you know it's also um the whole detection by even you know patterns and, and user behavior is a challenge as well depending on your environment you know i worked for oh, yeah. an organization for a while that did a lot of coding and they had a lot of development environments and it's not unusual for their folks to be you know running really odd um, powershell scripts or you know connecting to chocolatey we gosh we used to get alerts all the time cuz somebody was downloading something from the chocolatey package manager and you know we'd look <laughs> into it and it was legitimate activity i mean people were were doing some type of development work and you know, I definitely think that that is a, um, a frustration for a lot of blue teamers because there is a lot of uh, noise that's generated from that, especially if you don't really mm-hmm. um, have your environment segmented out and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. Oh, user-based, <laughs> user-based behavior analytics is, and that, that can become a weird and dangerous rabbit hole for sure. Because then so you start to... Content. <laughs> <laughs> uh I, yeah, as we were first sort of establishing the sim at the place that Chase and I worked at together, I got this uh, doughy-eyed intern come in, and I'm like, hey, uh, we're seeing a lot of surprising amount of traffic to Tumblr.com. Uh, Chase, can you start hunting this down and figure out why? Who's, what are they, what are they doing? Why are they going there during, and this, this place that we worked at had overnight operators, so they would, there were shift employees who would work you know, the late hours of the, the evening and things like that. No, I'm not saying <laughs> Sam ruined my innocence. <laughs> <laughs> well, we found out that they were uh, <laughs> bypassing adult filter con- or d- adult content filters by going to Tumblr.com. Very specific Tumblr pages that had very specific content. So that was fun. It, it was, uh, that was a weird one. Yeah, you know, uh, but, um, you know, it's interesting being on the defensive side because you do have sort of that voyeuristic perspective of things in a sense, you know, where you are seeing a lot of those logs and occasionally you do run across some interesting cases like that. Oh, yeah. One of the uh, the security architects that we were kind of running this by as we were doing it, um, I believe Chase, correct me if I'm wrong, but he, his response to it was, they need to go to church. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. And then I think he offered to take you to church as well because you needed to cleanse your soul. He did. Um, Okay. So, Brian, you and I pretty much started at Black Lantern right around the same time. I think I was here just like a month or two before you. Maybe just a few weeks. I can't remember specifically. It's been a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All of last year was a long time. (laughs) It feels like. (laughs) Uh, 2020 was a weird year. Last year was the longest decade of my life. Absolutely. So before joining up with a security consultant firm, has your experience been widely organizational-based blue teaming, more consultancy, like just kind of gauging 
your your experiences. Yeah, um, it, it's kind of funny. I've actually been very fortunate and privileged to really kind of work across the spectrum. When I was back in high school, I was into the IT thing. You know, I actually worked mm-hmm. for a company during the summers where I would build custom PCs for you know companies, not not people, but you know we'd build you know fifty computers that we'd deploy to an office or something like that and we'd build them put all the parts together take them install them do whatever we needed to for a configuration side so i had a little bit of that sysadmin side um i also did the same thing with phone systems and got to learn some of that technology then when i went away to college and did that thing and then got out of college i was not really sure what i wanted to do um and i actually started working at a bank and you know the the whole financial world is just in dire need of some major security upgrades and that was over 10 years ago so it was even worse at that time <laughs> and i sort of saw a niche for myself i was doing some of the sysadmin stuff you know regular um domain administration phone system maintenance things like that but i really um was interested in the security side of things. And so I started doing a lot of studying, um, you know, taking courses that I could online, free stuff, YouTube videos. They weren't as abundant as they are today back then, but you know that, that's kind of where I started and really just got hands-on working on projects. Um, and I shifted from a sysadmin role to basically creating the security program at that financial institution that I was at. They were a little smaller, you know, a, a local kind of hometown bank. So. It was kind of cool to see that that small scale perspective because I got to do a lot of things that were not necessarily typical of your your regular cyber defender. You know, I actually got to work with the compliance folks putting policies together. I got to work with pretty much all of the different facets and aspects of putting a security program together, not only the technical, but also the strategic stuff, which was kind of cool. And then when I left there, I actually went to a huge organization that was um, global and was worked in a SOC there for um, several years. And um, I did your, you know, your typical sock life. Um, I actually started as a tier two and then made my way up to you know, one of the seniors and then um, ended up doing a lot more of the digital forensics and incident response stuff. So I guess to answer your question, I've kind of done the, the whole gamut of um, any type of cyber defending that is out there. Um, I might not have gotten real deep into it, but I've been able to touch and experience a lot of different things um, in the cyber defense world. So I always feel like doing blue teaming for like banks or financial organizations like that would be really interesting just uh, just to see the kind of attacker traffic that they they attract. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and they also, it, it's kind of the same thing in, you know, the health industry as well. They have unique regulations mm-hmm. that they have to deal with. And, you know, obviously compliance doesn't equal security. We see that all the time. <laughs> so, um, but there are things that they have to keep up with and and know and take care of, you know, associated with PCI and, you know, even the fact that most of them, um, I know we actually had to deal with some of the HIPAA stuff because we collected some PHI data in the fashion of driver's licenses Mm -hmm. and things like that, that you might not consider as PHI. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see all the different regulatory and compliance requirements that are, that are in play on the financial side. Yeah. That, you know, some organizations don't have to deal with. So. Yeah. There's, those regulations are good or those those sort of compliance guidances are good for keeping everyone at a a standard but treating them as sort of a, a security golden target is a is a weird sort of weird perspective that I have seen people sort of I don't remember it, it was someone who was talking to me and they were like oh yeah we're PCI we're we're hyper secure no one we're we're all right I'm like PCI is just a baseline that's that's mm-hmm. what it's intended for. You you have to this is the minimum you're supposed to be doing. 
Yeah, you know, and I, unfortunately, I feel like that's a mindset that a lot of people have got in is that if they can check that mm. box for that compliance, they, they feel safe, they, they feel secure, they, they feel like they're they're meeting the demands that, you know, the industry is telling them they need to meet and they take it for what it is, that <laughs> take it at face value that yeah. they are now a secure organization. And uh, the reality is, is just not the case. I mean, even the reality is, is even the most secure places aren't you know fully secure there's always going to be that that one little hole or you know like you mentioned earlier there's that that one server that somebody hadn't touched in five years and just abandoned and forgot about so it's always something do you want the chance to meet sam myself or any of the guests we've interviewed in person for some reason all the while improving the security of your organization well, then feel free to hit us up at blackmiresecurity.com slash contact us. Be sure to mention the podcast. And if you want to advance your own professional career, hit us up at blackmiresecurity.com slash jobs. Thank you for listening. That mindset, I, I call it security by audit, is one of my biggest pet peeves, where they go by like the letter of the word of the requirement and don't do anything more. So if like your audit internally or whatever uh, regulation states you have to have a SIM, you plop a SIM down the network, you have a SIM. You don't do any work to maintain it or anything like that to actually improve the security, but you have it, so you pass that audit check. That is my biggest pet peeve when it comes to security. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I, I completely agree with that. And it's funny to see the extremes that people do in that in that regard. You know, the, using the SIM, for example, you know, they'll install a SIM and then they'll either do one of two things. They will literally log all the things and send everything that's over there to where the SIM is just not even functional or they log absolutely nothing. So they have a SIM in place, but it's not actually doing anything. <laughs> so. I know we always toyed around with the idea of having two SIMs almost. One, one compliance SIM that is collecting all of the logs that are supposed to be collected in one location and then an actual security SIM that is a little bit more tuned on what logs they're collecting to, to be a little bit more targeted on you know what's going to pop alerts and what's what's going to be uh, actively sought after yeah so you know that's actually a um that's actually a really hot topic right now um mm. in the cyber defense world and there's a lot of people that are recommending that practice you know it, by, at one of my previous organizations we we fought the battle with the sim that they realized hey we can ingest logs and by ingesting logs that also means we can get some metrics data um, and so they tried to turn the sim basically into a, you know, a, a compliance um, platform where, you know, they, they wanted to log whenever a firewall, it started dropping packets or something like that, which, you know, may be valuable, but most of the time that's going to be for network operations and not valuable in a sense of security operations. And unfortunately, those type of things happen all the time, and it generates a <laughs> lot of noise. Um, so when you do have an incident or you are trying to investigate something, it, it's a lot to sift through. It also makes the the sim just get sluggish and, and return mm-hmm. results back really slow. You know that that's always been a struggle for sure. But the the cyber community is actually really getting into this idea of of deploying, like you're talking about where you have a SIM that's pretty much for a catch-all, and then they are referring to the back-end SIM or the one that's actually used for incidents as a, as a tactical SIM. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you put really critical log sources in there. You put things that are going to be high fidelity, uh, you know, that are really only going to be things that are of interest and not necessarily just the, those regular login data or things like that. So that that's becoming a, a common trend I'm seeing, actually. And you know, with storage and everything getting so cheap, it, it's becoming more practical from a financial standpoint as well. Um, there's also some really great open source solutions that are coming out, in, you know, in the, the SIM wor- mm. world that I guess facilitating that <laughs> that effort also. See, Chase, uh, we were ahead of our time. 
and you know, shout out to Ross too because he was part of those discussions. <laughs> Ross, I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> I think he listens to this. I believe so. But the the, the concept of just slowing down your sim is just uh, that hits too close to home. I think at some point we were doing queries that Chase, you would have to let run overnight just to get the data that we needed to look at, look at everything from a holistic perspective. And it was so frustrating, but it, it felt it was because of exactly what you're, you're talking about it. The SIM got added to the environment was used as a generic. Well, there was a, a standard that said logs had to be collected and stored in a localized location, which I, I agree with I, that's a, that is an important step to do, but they don't all have to go into a SIM. It's, SIM is not a log repository. It is a security incident and event manager <laughs> or monitor. So it's just, it, the perspective there is, you know, Chase, I think you hit it right on the head. Security for compliance or security by audit is just this. It, it's really frustrating, especially on the blue team side, when that's your day-to-day. That's where you're sitting. That's what you're... Yeah. And it really impacts your tools. So, Brian, it actually just so happens that today you sort of talked... Uh, our company through a tool that I'd never heard of before called the Hive, right? Yep. Which is super cool. It's a sort of, I'll call it an incident case management platform for lack of a better term because it's really not a ticketing system or anything along those lines. But I think it, it really highlighted the the fact that for a long time, the SOC and sort of blue team or incident management fell in this sort of middle zone when it came to tooling. Like a, a lot of the tooling that, at least in my time on the blue team, we were relying on, you know, some of the networking tools to get data like SNMP traffic or SNMP traps that they've set up to send us data about some of the data flow or net flows. You know, like you said, the, uh, oh no, I blanked. What is the, uh, what is the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> software management system? Um, oh, SCCM. SCCM. My goodness. My brain was like. SMB, SMB, it's SMB. <laughs> uh, I'm tired. <laughs> um, but yeah, S, uh, SC. <laughs> I'll have you know, Sam, I'm, I'm going to keep this in. I know you will. Editing. I know. This is going to become the cold open. <laughs> but, anyways, my point is there's. I think there's been a pretty uh, drastic evolution in the tools that are available for blue teamers in the last, you know, two, three, or even five years. From your experience, what what are some of those like major altering tools that you now absolutely re- recommend any SOC or any blue team have in their arsenal? I, I guess it's really dependent on the environment itself. The Hive is is a really awesome project that is pretty much being supported pretty heavily by the community, um, which is really great because it's it's offering the ability to expand the functionality of that tool from what the developers are doing, but it, it it's solving a lot of problems because the people that are making those extensions to that platform are the ones having the issues, you know, that I think that's why it's molded into what it is, you know, as we were going through the demo today, I know you specifically made a bunch of comments because you've been on the blue side and you know some of those pain points and it's really refreshing to see some tooling coming out that solves those pain points mm-hmm. um and the, the, they're 
coming that way because they're being made by people that have experienced and, and dealt with that for a while. Um, I, I definitely think another thing or another open source one that and the Hive actually integrates with it is MISP. The whole idea of data sharing has become a critical component for defenders. You know, we're all we're all fighting the same fight, and be, depending on the environment size, especially for large organizations versus smaller organizations, the larger places are probably going to see more stuff. The smaller organizations will probably see it as well down the road, but the larger ones are probably going to be hit beforehand. So it's it's kind of like you can get a little preemptive by sharing information. And MISP came out and is it essentially provides that that threat intel feed, but community supported threat intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's different types of channels and and different feeds that you can subscribe to 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 get that data, and it really facilitates the the community sharing aspect. So you know, I think I think MISP is great. You know, most large organizations might have their own. Uh, version of that it's usually considered a tip or a threat intel platform but you know it it, i think that that has been a a really big thing that's driven the the progress of defensive efforts is being able to collaborate and share information amongst organizations Um, i know there's a little bit of taboo to that because especially if you have regulatory requirements in the financial world that that inhibit you from you know sharing certain things and obviously if you're sharing information about attack vectors whether it's indicators of compromise or attack or whatever it may be that also sort of alludes to the fact that you know maybe you're working on an incident and may give way more information than you want to about your organization and what they're going through so there's definitely some fine lines that you have with that but being able to to share and collaborate that information with other organizations has really provided opportunities for some of the organizations that might not have been able to have that data otherwise you know like i said i work for a smaller financial institution and we were part of the the fsi's act which is the financial mm-hmm. services um, information share community and i could tell you that there were several attack vectors that i probably never would have even known about if it wasn't for that community they also were able to share you know different types of detection techniques or maybe a script that they ran in their environment you know like we were talking about earlier to identify you know rogue assets or something of that nature so i I think that that has been a really big thing for for the community yeah the those threat feeds are really important and we i mean we had access to those as well the those isac feeds and that definitely helps especially when it's industry focused right you you brought up fs isac we had um ONG ISAC because we were part of uh, sort of the energy sphere. Um, and I know there's all kinds of different ISAC sort of organizational specific ones that help with that. And then, cause that helps keep in mind the regulatory aspects of that, like you mentioned. Now, before we go too far, that just to reiterate on that, that was MISP, M-I-S-P. Yes, right? correct. Yeah, sorry. It's a, I believe it stands for Malware Information Sharing Platform, okay. I think is what the acronym expands out to. I think I'd mentioned too earlier on our when we were discussing the hive internally on our stuff that I really don't I, I hate that it's named MISP because um, it does throw that malware factor in there, <laughs> but it's it's definitely used for other other things other than just uh, sharing the malware information. Yeah, so. it's not limited just to its name. <laughs> well, and I I think its intention sort of changed tracks there. Yeah. Uh, I think people realized you know hey this can be used for more than just what we originally created it for, which happens often I feel like <laughs> with tools. <laughs> well, plus it helps people have it in a centralized location and not have to rely on Twitter for some of that threat intel. <laughs> that too, yes. And we'll absolutely have links to MISP and the Hive in show notes. That way you guys can, if you, anyone who's curious, you can get access to those links real quick. But yeah, as soon as you started walking us through the Hive today, I was I immediately, I think I messaged Chase after your, your, your talk and I was like, God, if we would have had that, you know, three or four years ago, Things would have been very different. <laughs> would have made our lives much easier. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's taken a lot of the grunt work out of things, too. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the integrations with the Hive is a component called Cortex that allows you to utilize analyzers and responders are the term that they use. But essentially, those analyzers, you know, could tap into APIs for various open source intelligence things. You know, for example, if if you were working on a, a phishing incident, you know, one of your first steps will be to go see, you know, have I seen this or has this domain that of the sender been seen somewhere before? And generally that would require you to go to several different resources or whatever it may be on the internet. But with the Hive, you can use those Cortex integrations with the analyzers to essentially just quickly pull that information. So you upload an observable, whether it be an IP address, um, a sender address, something like that. And then you can use those analyzers to just go quickly pull that information and show it to you. So, you know, it's, it's sort of automating a lot of that tedious work of just enriching, you know, data enrichment, which helps for you to make a quicker decision, take quicker actions, you know, reduce those mean times to detect and mean times to respond. Because pretty much by the time the analyst is sitting there looking at that ticket, they're good to go. They have almost all of the information they could ever want and make, you know, an educated decision of what the next steps need to be. The Hive also allows you to, you know, set up tasking to essentially build playbooks. Uh, so, you know, even for a lower tiered analyst that may just be getting into the, the game, you know, you, you can create a phishing incident that literally walks them through step by step saying, you know, hey, check this header field. And then they have to assign that task to them. Um, it'll give them some information on how to do it. They can put the notes and what they did and what they found. Um, and then obviously all that can be correlated, you know, from a metric standpoint to see, you know, where your pain points are. Is there other, you know, parts of that investigation process that could be automated as well? You know, that's a, I think I demonstrated that on the call that we had earlier today is that the Hive's really great with having expandability of its features. Uh, you know, you can just write a, an automation tool that, you know, does that, that one step mm -hmm. that you're having issues with, and then that will improve your response times even more. So yeah, it's a really great tool. A lot of really cool things that it can do. And it definitely makes the uh, the blue teamer's life um, much simpler. <laughs> I know uh, a lot of the sort of automation and orchestration that comes with that, that was stuff that we we were looking at doing before it was really built into tools, just because we knew it was on the horizon, that was the way to go. Because it, it like you said, anything to help improve that MTTR meantime to, uh, to respond or the MTDD or the meantime to defend or detect, not defend. The, those two sort of metrics are what most socks are kind of held against, which anything you can do to help improve those. So through orchestration, like you were saying, the phishing example, I know there were hundreds of times it we would get this report of like, oh, someone clicked on this phishing link. It flagged all kinds of different things in our system, but we would have to go through the process of validating. Is this a, a bad link? Where does it go? What does it do? Does it actually drop anything when they, they hit it? Did they actually make it to it or did something along the way stop them? And it, it's just a whole process of like, there's a whole information gathering phase that comes with those alerts. So anything that can get in there and help gather that at the speed of computer versus con speed of human brain is helpful. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, another, um, I guess, just to chime in there too, uh, one of the other added benefits that I feel like it does is it al almost provides you with a layer of protection as well. You know, when you're in the heat of an incident, you, sometimes it's, it's really easy to lose your logic and, you know, you may not want to tip off the attacker that you're investigating their stuff, but then you might take that attachment that was sent in that email and, and try and upload it to VirusTotal or mm -hmm. something. And now you've exposed potentially sensitive information, you know, if that was a legitimate document or something like that, or if it was a, you know, targeted attack toward that organization, it might expose information about your organization that might not otherwise be known. 
but yeah. you know one of the things with the hive and the cortex stuff is that you can set restrictions on what you're able to do with those artifacts you know you can say if there's an ip or there's a url that's there you're allowed to investigate and you're allowed to check open source resources, but we want it to all be, you know, passive investigation. We want you to go um, see if somebody else has uploaded it, but don't actually upload the file. So, yeah. you know, it kind of offers that layer of protection for um, really against mistakes or just, you know, clouded mind when you're in the, the heat of an incident. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like the the part of cyber, like one of the, the other things I m mentioned earlier that cyber people, re we really like to defend and protect, but I think we're all a little bit of adrenaline junkies down at the core, just the like lamest kind of adrenaline junkies because we don't like to jump out of planes, most of us at least. But the the adrenaline that comes with on the red team side of getting a shell, that is such a crazy, just shock to the system and crazy high. The other, the blue team side of that, and it's still one of, one of my favorite experiences is just being in the heat of an incident. You are, you know, nose to the, nose to the keyboard or, that's probably not a very good analogy. It doesn't seem very helpful to have your nose <laughs> up to the keyboard. I think grindstone um, would still, still fit in this yeah, one. Yeah, that's probably, <laughs> probably fair. Um, but you're you're in the heat of the, the situation, and each second is critical. Each each step you take, each, you know, especially if it's been called as a major incident or a major impact or something like that, you are now either in front of a cert team or some kind of corporate or major response team that you know they have eyes on what you're doing CISOs and CIOs and other people up the chain have eyes on what you're doing and it becomes this you know you gotta watch for tunnel vision <laughs> so I, I don't know it's just one of those things where it's like the adrenaline of being in an incident is absolutely in line with what you're saying of like you're you become focused on figuring it out you become focused on fixing it or stopping it or mitigating it in some way and you can lose sight of the bigger picture, but it's just, it's still a great rush. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are getting close to time. Mm -hmm. So I think how I'd like to sort of close this out, I, I love blue team stories. I think it's, they're always some of the most interesting ones to hear the sort of the steps taken or the experience had and things like that. So Brian, what is it? If anyone were to ask you what your favorite blue team experience, favorite blue team story is, can you share it with us? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, um, especially depending on the, the volume of, of incidents you work or situations that you go through, they, they all start to overlap. <laughs> and I, I guess it almost turns into some of those um, sort of big fish stories. But I think there's one that probably sticks out with me that I just remember because of the way that it unfolded. I, I know that, um, so I worked second shift on the sock for a while and one of the nights I was I was working by myself actually and was reviewing the monitors and I saw some alerts coming across for one of our AV tools that it well the EDR itself was what flagged but it was associated with a username that was similar to our AV tool it, it basically had the name in the user and so I started doing some investigation and I, I reached out to the team for the, the AV folks and they had um, mentioned that oh yeah that's a legitimate account and you know they told me that Oh yeah, the, the, that was us. We, we did it. And then everything just kind of went to, you know, rest. I, I had done my due diligence. I did what I was supposed to and confirmed that they said it was okay. So I closed out the case and about three days later, we, we got contacted by the uh, CISO that was like, 
did you guys detect this? And we told them yes. And they said, well, why'd you not do anything about it? And I basically went back to my, my tickets. And I guess this is kind of one of those, you know, cover your butts, put the CYB in um, <laughs> cyber. Um, you know, I'd, I'd taken pretty detailed notes and pretty much walked through all of my communications that I had had with the, the AV team. And it turned out that, that that activity that I had captured and looked into was not legitimate, and it was actually a pin test that they were doing black uh, black box, and so the only person that really knew about it was the CISO anyways. But it was really funny to see that the AV team was uh, quick to, you know, claim responsibility for it and say that it was all okay. And, you know, nothing really came back on the SOC team or myself uh, just because, you know, we, we took thorough documentation and stuff. But I guess that was kind of a lesson learned that, you know, during that time it was if you see an alert or something, you can't just take somebody's word that it's it's legitimate. You know, you follow through, definitely document everything you do, all the steps that you take. It was kind of a, a unique opportunity that's kind of stuck with me. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that is a wild one to be like, yeah, I had the uh, I had the pen testers on the line, but then the AV team told me to just cut them loose. It was fine. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Yep. Oh man, that's that's a rough one, and I feel like. I think we need to have a, de- a whole episode on deconfliction or just generic or general uh, interacting with between pen testing and blue teaming and sort of war stories that come with that because I've I've got some from both perspectives <laughs> and it's you're absolutely right it's just that whole concept of like I did what I was supposed to what do you want <laughs> right <laughs> well Brian thank you very much for chatting with us this hour flew by. So it's always wonderful to chat blue team and sort of get your perspective on things. Do you have anything else that you want to plug or point to or anything like that? Do you have a blog or anything that you want to share? Uh, I mean, you know, I, most of the blog stuff that I've put out, we've put on the Black Lantern site. You know, we did one recently for detecting DC sync attacks. Kind of did a purple team engagement with, with the leadership team here at Black Lantern. And pretty cool. It was a fun exercise and we got some great information out of it. So that can be found on the uh, the Black Lantern website. You know, uh, other than that, no, I, I appreciate you guys having me on. And, you know, hopefully we can do some more in the future. Maybe even have some purple team discussions or detection engineering. Oh, yeah. I know that's a that's a big buzzword right now. Um, we do a lot of that as well, so um, it's fun stuff, and I always love the opportunity to chat about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again. Appreciate having you on here, and then everyone really should like if you are a, a SOC or detection analyst or anything along those lines. I highly do recommend going and finding out, finding brian's article on detecting dc sync it's a really good article it's, he did a lot of really good research for it i'll make sure it's linked in the show notes so but, but i i highly recommend that one now's the part where i'm supposed to close out this episode and as usual uh chase i don't know what i'm doing um <laughs> bye no we gotta <laughs> plug stuff chase there's a whole there's a there's a process make sure you guys follow the podcast on Twitter at anyport underscore pod, as well as Black Lantern Security at Black Lantern LLC on Twitter. Keep an eye out for information and uh, hot takes like Brian's uh, blog posts to make it to uh, the Twitter. Also, our sticker contest is still going on. We've got a couple of people who claimed it already, so uh, make sure you tweet at us and let us know that you're listening, and uh, you'll get your hand, get yourself a, an early sticker which we did just design we've got them ordered we're super excited about them really happy with the way that they turned out and then big uh shout out to morgtong that's m0 org t0 ng 
G1 on Twitter. He sent us a, a really awesome message uh, on Twitter with some feedback and a couple of suggestions, and we absolutely appreciate that kind of interaction. Take it to heart and really appreciate you know any feedback. We, I, I know personally I really enjoy doing the show, and I have a lot of fun doing it. So it's just nice to hear when people listen, and it's just it's gratifying. 